everyone. Welcome back to True Crimes Untold. I'm your host, Jess. If you're new here, hello and welcome. I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. Before we get into the episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to you guys. We hit over 2,000 listeners the past few weeks, and it just keeps on growing too. And that is very exciting for me. I know there's probably people out there that are like, ooh, big deal, 2,000, like whoopee. I didn't know if I would ever see that number. So to see that and for it to continue to grow past that is like pure fucking excitement for me. So thank you all so much. I appreciate you more than you will ever know. And I hope that you continue to listen. So yeah, just wanted to say that. Love you all. Let me give a little bit of a listener's disclaimer before we jump into this episode. Uh, There will be, of course, adult language and very graphic detail about what happened. That's all I can really say um, without like giving anything away. Just know that it is graphic. And if you don't want to hear that type of thing, I understand. I'll give you a few moments to jump past while I just tell you how disturbing and confusing this case is. And I honestly cannot wait to hear what you guys think and your opinion on this. JR and I sat literally, I don't know, for for a long time just going back and forth of all of the possibilities. And at the end of each one, we would be like, but no. That couldn't make sense either because of this reason and and that it just kept happening like that over and over again. So I can't wait to see if you guys have like something that maybe we didn't think of um, or that people involved in this case situation didn't think of. But yeah, so let's go ahead and get into it. This is the mysterious death of Ellen Greenberg. This story takes place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was late in the afternoon on Wednesday, January 26, 2011, and the city was getting hit with another blizzard, and people were warned not to leave their homes unless they had to. Sam Goldberg was just getting back to his apartment after a 30-minute workout at the gym, and thankfully he didn't have to leave his building because there was a gym on-site in the complex. Sam lived in an upscale condo building called the Venice Lofts, and he lived with his fiancée, 27-year-old Ellen Greenberg. According to Sam, when he got back to his apartment and went to open the door, it was latched closed with a swing bar lock that can only be unlocked from the inside, so he could not get in. Sam stated that he and Ellen only really used the swing lock at night when they were sleeping for extra protection. He tried calling and texting Ellen, who he knows is inside, but he's not getting a response. His text messages went from a simple hello to what are you doing, but the longer he waited, he started to get upset, sending her texts like, what the fuck, you better have an excuse, and you have no idea. Sam waited for a few more minutes, but with each passing minute that Ellen wasn't responding, he grew more and more concerned. He decided to go and tell the security guard at the building about the situation to see if he could get help from him to get into his apartment. 
The security guard, a man named Phil Hanton, told Sam that he could not unlock the door for him, that it was against the building's policy for safety reasons. But the two of them went back to Sam's apartment door together, and by this point, there wasn't much else that Sam could do except for bust through the door, which is what he ends up doing. Sam was not prepared to see what was waiting for him on the other side of that door. At about 6.30 p.m., 911 dispatch gets a call from Sam. This is the audio from that call. I just, I just walked to my apartment. See, I sit on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come help. 4601 Flat Rock Road. Is this a house or apartment? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's an apartment. What apartment number? Please hurry, Where please. Where is she bleeding from? See, I don't know. I can't tell. No. <laughs> so you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She, I'm I don't sorry. know. I, I'm looking at her right now. <laughs> she, I don't, I can't see anything. She doesn't, there's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from? Can't Ellie. Where the blood's coming from? It's, I think her head. I think she hit her head, I think. I think but it's, it's everywhere. Okay, it's everywhere. Think she might have fallen? Do you know yeah. what happened? I, she, she, she may have slipped his blood on the, on the table. Her, her face is a little purple. Okay, hold on for rescue for her. Stay on the phone. Okay, someone's on the way out there. Okay, just get Oh, my God. Oh, my God. How old is she? 
first responders arrived, they find Ellen in the kitchen, which is just right inside the entrance of the apartment. Sam told the dispatcher that he found Ellen laying on her back, but first responders say that she was on the floor, slumped over, leaning against the kitchen cabinets. Ellen was fully dressed, wearing a zip-up hoodie, t-shirt, sweatpants, and Ugg boots. Police can see that Ellen is holding a white towel in her left hand, and her right hand is in a loosely closed fist, and sitting next to her on the floor was a pair of eyeglasses. Just like Sam said on the phone, there was a knife still lodged in her chest, and police can see that there are rips and tears through her clothes that are consistent with stab wounds. Ellen's body and clothes are covered in blood, and it is clear to medics and police that there is nothing they can do to save her, and she is pronounced dead at the scene at 6.40 p.m. As police take a closer look, they see a knife block that is knocked over and two of the knives had fallen out into the sink. It appeared that right before Ellen had died, she was making a fruit salad. They found a strainer on the counter that was filled with blueberries and an orange that seemed to be freshly sliced. On the countertop, police find a couple drops of blood, but no blood on either knife in the sink. Other than the few drops on the counter, the rest of the blood was found pretty much contained to the corner of the kitchen where Ellen's body was found slumped over. Police continue to look around the rest of the apartment, and they notice that every other room seems very clean and well-kept. Nothing seems to be stolen, and there's still quite a few valuables in the apartment, including three laptops, Ellen's engagement ring, and her purse. Homicide detectives from the Philadelphia Police Department say they didn't see any signs of a struggle. According to the Emmys report, the inside lock on the front door is broken and the screws were loose. The report says, quote, obviously forced in when in a locked position and police believe that this is what happened when Sam had to force entry. Other than the front door, there is only one other way in or out of the apartment, and that's the sliding door that leads to a small balcony that is basically a ledge with a railing. Sam and Ellen's apartment was on the sixth floor, so it was very unlikely that someone got in through that sliding door. Plus, there was fresh snow on the ground and on the balcony ledge that was untouched, and there were no tracks left by anyone. 
Back inside of the apartment on a nightstand in the bedroom, police find three bottles of different medication that was prescribed to Ellen. They were Xanax, Klonopin, and Ambien, and all three were prescribed by a psychiatrist named Ellen Berman. Along with the medications, police also find a notebook in Ellen's purse where she had to track her mindset while she was taking these medications. Around 8.30 p.m., two hours after Ellen is pronounced dead, an investigator from the medical examiner's office gets to the apartment. He looks over Ellen's body and notices that she doesn't have any defense wounds on her hands or arms. Police want to know everything that Ellen did that day leading up to her death. They learn that she had gone home earlier than usual that day from her teaching job as a first grade teacher. The school was let out early because of the blizzard that was coming in, and Sam told police that Ellen was home around 4.45 p.m. when he got ready to go down to the gym. He said that he stayed there for about a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, and that's when he went back upstairs and realized that he was locked out. He told police that he called and texted Ellen to let him in, and when he couldn't get through, that's when he knocked down the door, found Ellen's body, and called 911. The police found Ellen's cell phone in the master bathroom, so they check her activity log to see if Sam's story matched up. Police do see the text and missed calls from Sam. He sent her nine text messages from 5.32 to 5.54 p.m. Even though Sam's story seems to be checking out, police want to talk to other people, so they start with their neighbors at the Venice Lofts. The condo building is a pretty safe place to live. There are security cameras, a guard at the entrance, and the residents must use key cards to gain entry. Neighbors tell police that they did not hear anything coming from Sam and Ellen's apartment that day. No commotion, no arguments, nothing. Police break down exactly what they see from that day. Ellen was in the apartment with the door locked from the inside. She didn't have any defensive wounds, and from Sam's account, she was alone when he left her to go to the gym. All of these things make police come to the conclusion that Ellen died of a suicide. Police do have Sam come down to the station so he can give a formal statement, and he is accompanied by a criminal defense attorney. During this, Sam's dad calls Ellen's parents, Josh and Sandy Greenberg, and Sandy stated that this was the moment that their whole world turned dark. Sam's dad was calling to tell them that something bad had happened to their daughter, Ellen, and they weren't given much more information other than that Ellen was gone. Josh and Sandy live in Harrisburg, PA, and they aren't able to make the two-hour drive to Philly that night because of the bad snowstorm. The next morning, on January 27th, Josh and Sandy speak to the medical examiner over the phone. Sandy tells police that she last spoke to her daughter the day before around 7 a.m. while Ellen was on her way to work. She said the conversation was normal, but they could tell that recently their daughter was struggling with something. As of lately, Ellen had been feeling anxious, insecure, and unsure of herself, and that was not the Ellen that her family knew her to be. Shortly before Ellen's death, she had told her parents that she wanted to come home to Harrisburg, that she needed a break from work, and she reassured them that this had nothing to do with Sam. As much as Ellen loved her job as a teacher and loved her students, she just wasn't happy at the school. Her parents did not want her to just up and leave her job, though. They worried that it would affect her in future career opportunities. So they made a deal. 
Ellen agreed to see a psychiatrist, Dr. Berman, before making any major decisions. Other than Ellen not being totally satisfied at her job, Josh and Sandy tell the medical examiner that Ellen and Sam's relationship seemed good. They had just sent out their save-the-dates days before this, and Ellen had her wedding dress and everything. As far as they knew, the wedding was still happening that coming August. They all had just gone on vacation together a month earlier in December 2010, and in the ME's report, it goes on to say that Josh and Sandy explained that Ellen had never attempted to take her own life, and she never expressed any suicidal thoughts before. Ellen's autopsy is being performed by Dr. Marlon Osborne at around 9 a.m. the next morning, and what he finds changes everything the police knew about the investigation. The medical examiner can see that Ellen doesn't just have stab wounds on her chest, but according to the autopsy report, there are 10 more stab wounds on the back of her neck, one in her abdomen, and a huge gash on the backside of her head. Some of the wounds are very shallow, 0.2 centimeters deep, but others are much deeper, and the stab wound that killed Ellen was the one to her chest. The knife was still embedded in her chest, and it was four inches deep. It had a five-inch serrated blade with a five-inch handle, and it's from the knife set that police found in Sam and Ellen's kitchen. The doctor found 19 stab wounds altogether, plus the large gash on her head. But what doesn't make sense is in the autopsy report. Dr. Osborne described all of the wounds, even the stab to the chest, as having smooth edges. He also notices that there are tons of bruises all over Ellen's body, on her wrists, her arms, legs, and abdomen, and they are all in different stages of healing, which means that she didn't get all that bruising from when she died, but at different times over the past few weeks. The medical examiner finished the autopsy around 11 a.m. and he makes his ruling. Ellen's death is a homicide. The police were surprised to hear this and court records show that the crime scene had already been so contaminated that it would be impossible to go back and search for evidence. The day after Ellen passed, one of Sam's relatives contacted the property manager at Venice Lofts, asking if she could go in to the apartment and grab a few things for Sam for Ellen's funeral. According to a statement from the property manager, the relative checked with police to make sure that she was allowed to go in there, and they told her that she was fine to do that. Since the apartment wasn't a crime scene, it wasn't closed off. The property manager thought it was strange, considering there was blood still in the kitchen, and when she asked police what she should do about the cleanup, they told her it wasn't their department that handled that and recommended a cleaning service called Crime Scene Cleanup. The property manager decided she should record the condition of the apartment before letting anyone go in there for protection of Venice lofts in case anything was stolen or damaged. She then booked the service and had them come clean the apartment, and after that, she let Sam's relative come grab the items that Sam needed. When the relatives arrived, the property manager stays in the apartment, but she had no idea what they were taking and what they were told to take. According to CBS Philadelphia, when police realize they are dealing with a homicide, they get a search warrant and go back to the apartment on Friday, January 28th to look for evidence. This is after the cleaning service came in and scrubbed and sanitized the entire apartment. January 28th is also the day of Ellen's funeral and Sam's birthday. 
Ellen's family is Jewish, and traditionally in the Jewish faith, burials take place as soon as possible after a death. Her service was held at Bethel Temple in Harrisburg. The day after the funeral, a lieutenant tells the Philadelphia Inquirer that they found evidence that pointed them more towards a suicide than a homicide. He said that detectives were looking into, quote, mental issues that Ellen may have had. A police report stated that Sam's uncle James, who was an attorney in Philadelphia at the time, brought detectives laptops and a cell phone that he had taken from the apartment when they went to collect items for Sam. Detectives had also spoke with Ellen's psychiatrist, Dr. Berman, and subpoenaed her treatment records. Dr. Berman told investigators that Ellen was a new patient, and after dealing with severe anxiety for a few months, she decided it was time to see someone. Ellen had three appointments with Dr. Berman, and during the visits, she would talk about the pressures that she was feeling from work, but she never once said that she was having suicidal thoughts. When Ellen's toxicology report comes back, it showed that she had low doses of clonopin and Ambien in her system, which was the correct amount for what she was prescribed, and it didn't show that she was mixing other medications or over-medicating herself. Now, both of these medications that she did have in her system have potential side effects of suicidal thoughts and behaviors, which only convinces police even more that Ellen did kill herself. During the autopsy, Dr. Osborne noted that there was a cut to Ellen's dora, which is a thin layer of tissue that covers and protects the spinal cord. He wasn't sure if her spinal cord was injured, but if it was, she wouldn't have been able to continue to stab herself. Detectives suggest hiring an outside neuropathologist to look at that portion of Ellen's spinal cord. Dr. Osborne takes the spinal cord to Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams, who is a consultant for the medical examiner's office. According to Dr. Osborne, Dr. Adams does a quick study of the spinal cord, and her conclusion was that she did see the cut to the dora, but not any damage to the spinal cord. She said it was possible that Ellen would have decreased sensation, but she wouldn't have completely lost her motor functions. In early March 2011, Dr. Osborne notifies the police department that he is now declaring Ellen's manner of death a suicide. For police, this is just another suicide that they can close the book on. But for the Greenbergs, who found out about the medical examiner changing Ellen's manner of death to a suicide by the media, they aren't ready to give up. After their daughter's death, Josh and Sandy start to hear some unsettling things about Sam and Ellen's relationship. Ellen's friends told the Greenbergs that Ellen told them her and Sam's relationship was changing over time. It seemed like anytime Ellen wanted to go and do something, she had to ask Sam's permission first. Ellen's parents said that wasn't the confident and accomplished daughter that they always knew. Ellen and Sam were set up on a blind date by a friend's mother in 2007, and Ellen was smitten with Sam. They moved in together after a couple of years of dating, and when Sam proposed in June 2010, Ellen was very excited. The Greenbergs thought Ellen was happy with Sam, but they started to wonder if she actually was. When the Greenbergs finally get Ellen's belongings back, they find a receipt in her purse from a gas station timestamped just hours before she died at 1.26 p.m. 
They wondered why Ellen would even bother filling up her gas tank if she knew she was going to take her own life that same evening. And as time passes, more and more things aren't making sense to them. The Greenbergs get copies of Ellen's autopsy, the medical examiner's investigation report, and crime scene photos, and they hand them over to a well-known forensic pathologist named Cyril Wett. A year after Ellen's death in January 2012, Dr. Wett shares his findings with the Greenbergs. In his report, he notes that the multiple stab wounds to the back of the neck and the lower head were not likely self-inflicted. He also stated that victims of suicide rarely stab themselves through their clothes. Overall, his opinion is that Ellen's manner of death is, quote, strongly suspicious of homicide. The Greenbergs hope that Dr. Wett's report can help get Ellen's case reopened. They hire a lawyer, and in that spring, they get a meeting with the Philadelphia DA's office, but unfortunately, nothing came from it, and their lawyer stopped representing them. Then, former Attorney General Walter Cohen takes their case pro bono, and the Greenberg's PI, Tom Brennan, who had over 20 years of law enforcement expertise, also wanted to help the family. It's Tom's theory that Ellen might have been killed in what's known as a blitz attack. That's when a victim is caught by surprise and doesn't have time to defend themselves, which would explain Ellen not having any defensive wounds. Over the next few years, the Greenbergs did not find themselves any closer to knowing what happened to their daughter and dealt with setback after setback. Then, in 2015, a homicide prosecutor named Guy D'Andrea agrees to look at Ellen's case file after a friend brings it to his attention. Guy made a Facebook Live about his thoughts on the investigation, and he doesn't understand why Ellen's case wasn't viewed as a homicide when she had almost 20 stab wounds to her body and a laceration to her head. He said, quote, I don't have a good answer for that. Guy saw the surveillance footage from Venice Lost from that day. It shows the lobby and the corridor leading to the gym. The only people that came and went were other residents that lived in the building. Sam's key fob records verify that Sam got to the gym at about 5 p.m. that day and was there for about 30 minutes before going back to his apartment. There was no cameras in the hallway, so we can't see any footage from the sixth floor. There is footage of Sam going to speak to Phil, the security guard that was working that evening. But there's one big problem. Sam initially told police that when he went back to his apartment, Phil came with him. But when Phil was interviewed by police, he told them that he told Sam over and over that he could not help him break into his apartment. And when Sam told him that he may have to break the door down, Phil said, okay, but you will be responsible for any damage. And then Sam went back upstairs by himself. Phil never left his desk to go with Sam. In fact, the only time that Phil did leave his desk that night was when the first responders arrived. So, this means that no one was with Sam when he found Ellen's body. Guy decided to look into the swing bar lock that Sam and Ellen had on their door to see how secure it really was. He finds dozens of videos online of ways to unlock that type of lock from the outside of the door. Guy also notices that the swing lock that is on Sam and Ellen's door isn't that badly damaged for someone having to bust through it to get the door opened. It was still intact and attached to the door. 
Guy sees some major flaws in the way this case was investigated, and he's not the only one that feels that way. Over the next few years, the Greenberg's PI, Tom, brings multiple forensic pathologists to look at Ellen's case. One of the first was Dr. Wayne Ross. Dr. Ross examined a piece of Ellen's spinal cord, and in early 2017, he concludes that Ellen's cranial cavity had been punctured, which means that the stab wound would have likely made her unconscious and in turn would prevent Ellen from continuing to stab herself. Dr. Ross also noted that he found evidence that led him to believe that Ellen was strangled. He noticed a mark on the front of Ellen's neck that he thought could have come from a fingernail, along with multiple bruises on the side and under her neck. He also believed that the bruising that was found on Ellen's body had come from a brutal beating. Dr. Ross concludes that all of this evidence points to a homicide. A detective that specializes in crime scene reconstruction also got involved. He said that the blood pattern evidence suggests that Ellen's body was moved or repositioned after she died. First responders found Ellen sitting upright, slumped against the kitchen cabinets, even though Sam told the 911 dispatcher that she was lying flat on her back. Photos from the scene show a trail of blood running across Ellen's face, and then the blood flows back towards her ear, and that just wouldn't be possible because of gravity. There are many other theories and reports, and every single expert that the Greenbergs talk to say that Ellen did not commit suicide. Ellen's case was pushed to be reopened in 2017, but as Josh and Sandy wait another year to hear more information, they don't end up getting the response that they've been waiting for. The Attorney General's office stated that additional evidence was found that backed up the suicide ruling. An examination of Ellen's phone shows text messages between her and her mom shortly before Ellen's death that proves that Ellen was in serious mental distress. And the search history on Ellen's computer shows suicide-related searches from December 18, 2010 through January 10, 2011. She searched for painless suicide and methods of suicide. But this is confusing because there was an investigation report from 2011 that mentioned there was nothing related to suicide ever found on either of Ellen's laptops. When Guy DeAndrea looked over Ellen's file, he couldn't find the neuropathology report that Dr. Rook Adams performed, and since Dr. Adams ruled Ellen's death as a suicide, Guy wanted to see the report. When he asked the medical examiner for a copy, he was told that it was basically missing. When Dr. Adams was asked about it, she said she had no recollection of Ellen's case. So, no one is sure if she ever looked at Ellen's spinal cord or not, and how she came to the conclusion of suicide if she never did the work. Nine years later, and the Greenbergs still weren't going to give up. They got a new lawyer named Joe Pedraza, and in June 2019, Joe takes every single file that the Greenbergs have on their daughter's case. He looked over the letters from the first medical examiners on the case, and he contacted Dr. Osborne, asking him to change the manner of death back to a homicide or even undetermined. Joe reminds the medical examiner that there is forensic evidence in his findings that shows there were two different knives used, one with a smooth blade and one with a serrated. 
But even with all of this evidence, nothing happens. Ellen's death is still labeled a suicide. The Greenbergs decide to file a lawsuit against the medical examiner's office and Dr. Osborne to have Ellen's manner of death changed from a suicide to a homicide or undetermined. Dr. Osborne laid out his reasons for changing his ruling, and they included things like how shallow some of the injuries were, which could mean that Ellen was testing out how bad it would hurt and what it would feel like, and the lack of defensive wounds, and the statements from Sam and the broken lock that corroborated his story. As legal proceedings are underway, the Greenberg's lawyer got his own expert to look at Ellen's computer, specifically the suicide-related search history. They found that those searches were not direct searches. Ellen was searching for other things like side effects for the new medications that she was taking, and some of those potential side effects were suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Just last May, a pathologist named Dr. Lindsay Emery gave a deposition describing how Dr. Galino asked her to examine Ellen's spinal cord after she started working at the medical examiner's office. Dr. Emery said that at least one of the injuries had no hemorrhage or vital response, and that usually means that the person had no pulse when they were injured, which means that Ellen may have already been dead during some of the stabbing. Dr. Emery also stated that hemorrhage may have been washed away during the autopsy. So she couldn't come to a definitive conclusion on the manner of death, that she would need more information. But sadly, it's been 11 years and it may be too late to go back and get that information. Since Ellen's death, Sam Goldberg got married in 2014 and became a father. A Philadelphia judge recently ruled that Ellen's case may be able to go to trial and the Greenbergs will continue to gather as much information as they can until that day happens because they believe in their hearts that their daughter was the victim of a homicide. All they want is to get justice for their daughter, and they have a strong support system who stands with them, and hopefully one day, Josh and Sandy will know the truth about what really happened to Ellen. I will link the petition to have Ellen's case reopened in the show notes, and if you can all go and sign it, please. They are so close to reaching their goal, so let's keep it going. Please Also, just let me know, what do you guys think happened to Ellen? I just cannot see somebody committing suicide in that manner, stabbing themselves in the back of the neck, you know, 20, 19, 20 stab wounds. I just can't see it. I physically cannot, not only just like the pain of dealing with it and just the be being so afraid to do that to yourself, but just like to be able to continue after like the first one and then the second one and then the third one to get to 19 with your own hand, using your own hand. I don't know. To me, in my head, I feel like it is impossible, but I I don't know because like what what other logic is there When it comes to like, obviously there's proof that Sam was at the gym, like he said he was, but he also lied about a few things. Ugh, I don't know. I could, I could sit and talk about this for, 
forever until we find out what actually happened, which is why you need to go right now as soon as you're done listening to this and sign that petition. Thank you guys for listening. I will see you in a few weekends. Until then, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast and go on to Spotify, hit the subscribe button, and you will get notifications with new episodes. One more thing, go follow my dog. Yes, I am shouting out my dog because she is so freaking cute on Instagram. So I'm obsessed with Instagram reels. Obsessed. I love it. I love doing the audios and not to toot my own horn, but I'm pretty damn good at it. Um, But Luna hit her first thousand likes on one of her videos and I've been talking about it ever since. So I want to just continue to grow her page because she really is so cute and she had such a hard little start, you know, start to her life. And yeah, so go follow her. Her Instagram name is sweet period. So S W E E T dot Luna L U N A love sweet period Luna love. Go follow her like her videos. And yeah, see you guys soon. Bye.